If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah 40. We are jumping back into the book of Isaiah for this week, and then we will be out of the book of Isaiah for the next two weeks. Uh, Joshua and Jake are going to be preaching. I'm heading to a couple conferences, and um, they will preach and allow me to fully engage with those. Um, A couple studies from the Gospel of Mark, thinking about the heart of Jesus, his heart of compassion for all people, rich and poor alike. And so look forward to to hearing God's word from, from Jake and Joshua. But for today, our text is this wonderful chapter um, in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, that begins the, the second half of Isaiah's prophecy. The words that we left off with in Isaiah 39, if you remember, were words of distress to the people of Judah. God declared to them in no uncertain terms that while the Assyrians would be turned away from Jerusalem, would not conquer them, the Babylonians would most certainly come and take away the people of God into exile. God would use this foreign nation to judge his people, and roughly 100 years later, he did. Judah was mercilessly defeated and taken to Babylon. It's hard when you know something difficult or distressing is coming. Uh, Maybe you go to bed at night and you know that you have to get a cavity filled at the dentist in the morning. Or you head out on a long trip and just before you leave, you check Google Maps and you realize that there's dark red traffic lines all along your route. You know it's coming, but there's no other way to get there. Maybe it's bad news from a doctor about you or about someone that you love, and suddenly the future becomes a little uncertain. Or maybe your job suddenly feels like it's on the line. I could come up with more examples, and maybe you have your own. There are, there are countless opportunities for anxiety and fear in life, for looking into the coming hours or the coming days or the coming years and not knowing what is coming, or looking into those coming days and and years and knowing what's coming and not being able to stop it. For the faithful remnant of Judah who believed the word of the Lord through Isaiah, they too knew that distress was most certainly coming in their future. So what were they going to do about it? Well, what if they could see beyond the future into what God was going to do later? What if their eyes could be filled, not with the difficulty of exile, but with the hope of deliverance? And what if we could look at all the uncertainty and the distress of our own lives and know that God speaks tender words of comfort to us? What if we could know that our all-powerful God is willing and able to deliver us from all of our enemies? From the prediction of exile, in Babylon in chapter 39, Isaiah fast forwards about 170 years into the future in in Isaiah chapter 40. And he, he fast forwards not to the exile, but actually to the end of the exile, to the return of God's people to their land, to the joy of deliverance. And in this, Isaiah is assuring his hearers and us of this truth, God will comfort his people. God will comfort his people. 
a simple but profound big idea for us to think about this afternoon. God will comfort his people. Now, there, there are specifics in this chapter and in the ones to follow, details of Judah's particular situation and the return from exile. But what we also find in these chapters are breathtaking pictures of our unchanging God. And ultimately, it's in knowing and beholding God that we are assured of and experience comfort. We don't have to know the details of every situation. We just have to know who God is. God's word this afternoon then invites us to behold our God and to rest in this truth. God will comfort his people. Let's begin by reading Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. This is what God's word says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So we've said that the main thought of this passage is that God will comfort his people. That key word there in verse 1. In the midst of distressing circumstance, God brings consolation to those that are his. And verses 1 through 11 describe for us this message of comfort. Let's think about it. It seems almost as if Isaiah has been given a second prophetic commission from the Lord as we read these these verses, a a follow-up to that famous commission from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is told to speak to God's people here in verse 1 and then to cry in verse 6. And the message that he is given from the Lord is very different from that of chapter 6 and from what we read in chapters Uh, 6 through 39. After all of the the warnings and judgment, God now speaks of comfort. After so many sharp words of rebuke, he now brings tender words of promised redemption and restoration. The comforting words are summarized in verse 2. God says that Judah's warfare is ended. There are no more battles to fight. He says that her iniquity has been, has been pardoned. And he says that a double pardon is coming for her sins. It's this image that the amount of her sin will per- be perfectly matched by the amount of God's grace, like a paper 
perfectly folded over on itself. Note that this deliverance is for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people. And also that it is all from the Lord's hand that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. God is the one who will rescue his people. And that's why in verses three through five, his way must be prepared. The images of a a road filled with ups and downs, switchbacks and turns being leveled and and straightened. You might imagine a, a twisting and a difficult hiking path and it being suddenly leveled and straightened for you to walk on. It would seem that this is not the road out of exile. It's not that smooth way that God prepared through the decree of Cyrus that we saw in Ezra 1, though that that return from exile is what's foreshadowed in these chapters. Rather, though, this is the way for the Lord to come to save his people. God has not made a path and called us to walk on it so that we might arrive at a place of redemption. Rather, he's prepared a way for the Lord to come and to save us. We, of course, associate these words with John the Baptist that we read at the beginning of the service. And and his message of repentance was to, to make the way smooth and level for the Messiah to come and save his people. The way for Jesus to come so that he might bring life and redemption through his perfect life and his redeeming sacrifice on the cross. Yet again, salvation is by the Lord's hand alone. He is the one who who is coming to save us. God has sent his son so that our warfare against Satan and sin could be ended. So that we might receive a full pardon for our sins paid by Jesus. And so we might receive a double portion of his grace. And the way we prepare for this coming rescuer, according to John the Baptist, is not by physically leveling a road, but through spiritually humbling our hearts. This is the life of faith. We must constantly be rooting out the roadblocks of sin that keep us from waiting on and trusting in the Lord to save and to deliver and to rescue us. Verse 5 tells us that what is revealed in the coming of God to redeem us is his glory. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God is glorified as he arrives to rescue his people and all the surrounding nations see it. God is seen as the the only redeemer and the only way of rescue. And as we proclaim this gospel, we long that all people would see that, would see the glory of God revealed in his matchless grace that cannot be earned. We know that there's this also this great day of salvation coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the greatness of our God. This day of comfort for the exiles, the comfort that Jesus has brought in his first coming and the comfort of the full redemption that he's going to bring at his second coming are all assured by his faithfulness and the certainty of his word. Verses six through eight, there were reminded of how unreliable people are, that, that we are like the grass of the fields. You remember two weeks ago, we saw that we are mortal, we are fickle, we are selfish, Like Ahaz and Hezekiah, we cannot be fully trusted. But God is a God who always keeps his word. His word, his promises, they stand forever. His word stands according to verses 9 through 11 because of his powerful and gentle arm. The the good news, the the message of comfort is announced from the hill. I think the hill of Jerusalem, the, the place of burning and judgment, the altar hearth that Isaiah has talked about but it's also this place that announces redemption 
and restoration. From that mountain, the heralds call to Israel and they say, Behold your God. Look and see your God who will rescue you. He comes with might to rule and to receive his reward, the reward that is his people who he has purchased through his grace. But as all, his arm comes to rescue, when his arm comes to rescue his people, he doesn't crush them. His arm is gentle. We're told that he's a shepherd who feeds and leads his people into wonderful pastures. We remember that Jesus is the good shepherd. Like David, he, he comes to kill the bears and the lions and the enemies that threaten his flock. He comes as a shepherd also who lays down his life to rescue his sheep to draw them near, to carry them close to his heart. Think about how powerful God's arm is, but also how caring it is. This is the Savior that our hearts long for, one who is all-powerful and perfectly tender. This is the comfort that we need, comfort that God is coming to rescue us, comfort that his word will never fail, comfort that he is a strong and caring shepherd. And yet, and yet it's God's power and God's care that we sometimes doubt, that we lack faith in. The, the soon-to-be exiles, and we too, wonder if God is able and willing to, every, to do everything that he says he can and will do. In the words of David Jackman, they and we are asking, can God rescue us? And does he care about us? And so Isaiah, for the rest of the chapter, is going to answer those questions by saying in different words, behold your God. And so I want to invite you who are children of God through faith in Jesus to behold your God in this chapter. Do you doubt his power to rescue you from whatever you are facing? Do you doubt his compassionate care for you? Then hear the word of the Lord because it's a word of comfort that leads us to faith. So what's that first question? Can God rescue us? Can God rescue us? To that question, Isaiah has two answers in verses 12 through 26. Number one, his strength is immeasurable. And number two, his power is incomparable. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 40, 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor, its, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because, of his strong, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Can God rescue us? <laughs> In verses 12 through 17, we find that his strength is immeasurable. God's strength is immeasurable. The form of this chapter resembles a disputation. It's a formal argument on behalf of God, like something out of a courtroom. It may remind you in some ways of the closing chapters of Job, but with a little bit more tenderness, I think. <laughs> Yet still, there's this, this hint of incredulity and astonishment in Isaiah's voice. A kind of, do you really doubt God? And given who he describes God to be, we can understand why he's surprised at our doubts. We can understand why questioning God's ability to rescue us is just a little bit absurd. In communicating God's immeasurable strength, Isaiah speaks of various measurements specifically related to God creating and holding together the world. And he gives God human features to speak of his power. Now God is, is spirit, so he does not have hands. But if he did... He could hold all of the oceans of the world in the palm of, of one of them. Go ahead and put your hand out and think about that. It's not even this. <laughs> it's not two hands. It's one hand, all of the oceans in the palm of that hand. When he measured the sky, he, he measured it out. You ever try to measure something? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to hold my hand still and see if this would fit here. God measured the heavens, the sky, with a span, that's from your thumb to your, your pinky. That's how he measures the sky, with the span of his hand. He weighed the mountains and the hills on his kitchen scale. <laughs> what about the design of the earth? You know, I've taken on different projects, and I've realized that half of the process of building something is processing how to do it. <laughs> I'm about to finish up an outdoor table that I built for our, our family. And the number of articles that I've read and YouTube videos that I've watched and friends that I've consulted for this simple table, it's a lot. I won't tell you how many. <laughs> but when God made the earth, we're told here, he took counsel from no one. He made it by himself. From the vastness of the Himalayas to the intricacies of your eyeball, he designed it all and he made it all. He was taught by no one. He was not an apprentice to anyone. It reminds me of those Lego master builders who don't need the step-by-step -step instruction book to make unbelievable creations. They just make it. Of course, God didn't have anything to work with. He made the things that he made the things out of. When we hear the word strength, we think of physical power. But, but here we're reminded of God's intellectual ability, his, his wisdom, that, encourage us, that encourages us that he not only has ability to physically help us, but that he understands and he knows what needs to be done 
in every situation, and he knows what is best in the face of every obstacle that we meet. He is perfect, we're told, in justice, in knowledge, and in understanding. Behold your God. The nations show up in verse 15 because they're the other option for God's people, the the other source of might and wisdom that they could trust in. Their militaries and strategies for war and their false gods are other possible refuges. And so the nations here in these verses represent all other philosophies, all other sources of strength, all other people that we might turn to. They represent any other religion or even the denial of God altogether. And what are the sum total of all of these other refuges in comparison to God? He says they are like one drop of water that spills from the bucket that you're carrying to water your garden. You don't even think about it. You may not even notice it. He says they're like dust. They're like the dust that's on the scale at the Kroger checkout when you weigh your bananas. (laughs) Do you ever, when you're doing that, do you ever make sure that you wipe all of the dust off of that scale before you weigh your produce so that you don't have to pay a little extra? Of course not, why? Well, because it's gross, right? No, No, but also because the dust is so insignificant. And that's what God is saying, what Isaiah is telling us, that's what all other sources of strength are in comparison to God. They are nothing before him. They are less than nothing because nothing can compare to him. And no worship, we're told, is sufficient for how great our God is. The largest forest and every beast in it offered to him would not come close to what he deserves. And so we suddenly move into our, the, our second answer to this question, can God rescue us? First, his strength is immeasurable. And second, his power is incomparable. His power is incomparable. This is in verses 18 through 26. To make this point, Isaiah turns to our natural tendency to, to want to make something to compare God to, and he forms us, informs us that idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. The question of verse 18, to whom or what will you compare God, is answered in astonishment and mockery in verse 19. An idol? Really? Do we think we can represent the God that we have just described with some kind of statue? A statue that we make? A figure that we form? That we form with the things that the true God made from nothing? Gold and silver and wood? Of course not. None of these things will rightly ever allow us to behold our God. Another set of questions is found in verse 21. It reminds me of the questions like the one Jesus, is, Jesus asked Nicodemus when he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? <laughs> Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And what is it that we should know? Or maybe what is it that we so easily forget? Well, it should be clear to us that Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool. Get a picture of that. Heaven is the throne of God, and the earth is the place where he rests his feet. We should know that the limitless universe is to God like the blanket tent that you and your kids built in the family room. 
Specifically, he seems to reference humanity again, and he shows that in comparison to, the God's, to God's created order, we are nothing but grasshoppers. In the words of Isaac Watts, we're worms. In the words of George Bailey, we're scurvy little spiders. <laughs> and that's true for everyone. Verse 23 reminds us that the princes and the rulers of the earth, presidents and kings, billionaires and CEOs, we are all brought to nothing and emptiness by God. He compares earthly kings to, to seedlings that are just taking root. I had a few little seedlings out in the warm sun this past week, and some little fingers that shall remain nameless found the smallest of them and plucked them up with no effort at all. <laughs> and so too, God can pluck up the strongest of rulers and they're blown away by the breath of his mouth. Earthly rulers are compared to seedlings, but then God asks in verse 25, what are you going to compare me to? <laughs> Nothing, because he is incomparable. We're tempted to compare him to the sun or the moon or the stars, but he says, well, who created these? He did, and he knows every one of them. I was telling Anne the names of all of her cousins this morning, and I could hardly do it. I kept forgetting names. But God calls the billions and billions of stars by name. Friends, there's nothing that we compare God to, which is why scripture is so against idols and icons. We must beware of thinking that, that carved images, even images of, of Jesus, could ever fully represent who God is. We must be careful. We must be careful that, that we don't imagine that the movie that's depicting Christ captures all that he is. Because God, he, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and nothing we could ever create will ever compare to him. Nothing will ever fully represent who our God is. That's why God hates idols. Because they don't do him justice. We must also beware of worshiping other idols, of, of trusting in other things or seeking satisfaction in God's gifts rather than in him. Most of the idols we seek after could be summarized as idols of money, sex, or power. These are the things that our hearts run after and seek refuge in. As I think about our own culture, I think leisure and entertainment could be added to that list. But we must root out all the idols of our hearts and realize that none of them compare to God. None of them can comfort us. None of them can save us. Only he can. So I ask you the question, can God rescue us? His strength is immeasurable. His power is incomparable. Yes, he can rescue you. Behold your God who comforts you. But wait a minute. He's strong, but does he care? Does he care? I'm reminded of the, the man with leprosy in Luke 5. He comes to Jesus to be healed. He says to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So he trusted in Jesus' ability to heal him, but what he doubted was Jesus' willingness. He was unsure of God's love and care. And to those of us who get stuck in that same place, Jesus said to that man, and he says to us through the words of Isaiah 40, 27 through 31, he says, I am willing. <laughs> I care. Hear these beautiful words that you know so well of Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Who do you say, O Jacob, 
Or why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That cry of God's people in verse 27 is not one that doubts God's knowledge, but that doubts his compassion. And in response, Isaiah again asks asks some questions in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And in response to his questions, he shows who God is. Behold your God. Verse 28 seems to summarize everything that we've just read. God is the everlasting creator. He's the one who never grows tired. He's the one who knows all things. But then in verse 29, we see that that strength that God has is given to us. It's given specifically to who? To the faint and to the falling. To the ones who have no strength. I've said it before, my favorite part of the Christmas liturgy that we've done in recent years is when I ask, are you tired? And everyone says what? We are. (laughs) It feels like such a, a holy moment in the midst of the chaos of Christmas. Are you tired? We are. Being tired and weak is the right place to be because the gospel tells us that it was when we were without strength that Christ died for us. It's, it's when we admit our inability to save ourselves that God comes to comfort and to save us. And that's not just salvation, that's the continual life of faith, a life of admitting our need and asking for help from our limitless God. We must live like children who wake up in the morning and need you to get them the bowl and the spoon and the cereal and pour the milk And they need you to put them in their chair, too, before they can even have breakfast. That's what faith looks like. So if you still think you can handle life on your own, verse 30 wipes away the illusion that we are strong by holding forth the two most tireless groups among us, children and youth. How often have you looked at your kids and said, man, I wish I had their energy? (laughs) And yet, at the end of a long day, they fall asleep at the dinner table and their face lands in their plate. (laughs) Even they get tired. Or think of young men and women. Think of the strongest young men and women. Think about an Olympic athlete who seems to never tire, but at some point, they're exhausted. But there are those who will always find their strength renewed. Those who never grow weary or faint. They're ready to face whatever life can throw at them. Who are they? What's it tell us? It's the people who wait on the Lord. The people who trust. 
I'm reminded of Isaiah 31 where he says, blessed are those who wait on the Lord. Their strength is always renewing. They're like eagles soaring effortlessly through the sky. Now just because your strength is always being renewed doesn't mean that you don't rest and sleep. These folks who trust the Lord, they, they in fact are they're good sleepers. <laughs> they're some of the best people at resting. They are champion sleepers. Why? Because their hope isn't in themselves. Their hope is in the Lord. They don't need to be strong when their God, their God's power is immeasurable and his strength is incomparable and they're trusting in him. So they don't need to worry at night about their finances or their health or their family or anything else. Why? Because this same all-powerful God cares deeply for them. In thinking about God's care for us, I was thinking, I'm not just reminded about God's care for me, but also where, where Paul tells us that he calls me to, to comfort others with the comfort with which I have been comforted. How often we inadvertently or purposely kick those who are down. How often we demand that, that the weak get up on their own and we don't offer them help the way that the Lord helps us. Tell me if this rings true for you. I think that the church, whether true or not, can often be viewed as a place where people look and they say, I know that they are able to help, but are they willing? I think, sadly, sometimes that's true. That people know we have ability, but they wonder if we care. And so I would invite us to get a little more Isaiah 40, 11 into our souls. A little more compassion and tenderness. A bit more gentleness and love. A bit more Jesus. Jesus who would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Jesus who touched a leper and said, I am willing. So, I say with Isaiah, to you and to my own heart, behold your God. Meditate on who God is and know that whatever you're facing now, whatever you're going to face in the future, God will comfort you. God will bring consolation God will rescue and restore you. How do I know that? Because his strength is immeasurable. His power is incomparable. His care is extended, not to the strong. It's extended to the faint, to the weary, to the exhausted. And in the gospel, we could say it's extended to those that are dead in their sins which means it's extended to us because we are weary, we are faint, we are exhausted. So I would ask you, are you tired? If you are, then wait on the Lord.
take a moment of silence and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, I'm overwhelmed. And not just by your, your greatness and your power, but that you extend it to us. Would you give it to us? You give it to us who are faint and who are falling and who are, are weak. Lord, we're weak in our minds and in our souls and in our hearts and in our bodies. We are helpless apart from you. And thank you, Jesus, how compassionate you are that you have moved heaven and earth to come to rescue us. You have sent your spirit to live within us and build us up. So Lord, help us to behold our weakness and then to behold our God and know, Lord, that, that you are with us. You are seeking our good. So Lord, fill us with a, a vision for your greatness. Fill us with a, a knowledge of your power and your strength, but also of your compassion and your care and your love for us. And then, Lord, fill us with faith in you and with love for other people that we would go and we would comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted in Christ. I pray this all in, in Jesus' name. Amen.